This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, and others with topics that will pique your curiosity. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Jean Theo Harris about her book, A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. The civil rights movement has become national legend, lauded by presidents from Reagan to Obama to Trump as proof of the power of American democracy. In A More Beautiful, Terrible History, historian Jean Theo Harris dissects this national myth-making teasing apart accepted stories to show them in a strikingly different light. Jean Theo Harris is Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Brooklyn College of City University of New York and is author or co-author of seven books, including the New York Times bestselling and 2014 NAACP Image Award winning The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Jean Theo Harris, welcome to Books, Peace and Beyond. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So this book is incredible. It's packed with so much uh, incredible information that has just been omitted, hidden, uh, what have you, from from just the history books. And I, mm-hmm. I just want to jump right into it. You said, Great. you stated that uh, the civil rights movement has been mythicized. It's been rendered to a fable. Why? Mm-hmm. And, and what's the significance of this? So one of the things that I try to chart in the book is the process by which the civil rights movement, which has certainly been one of the most profound challenges to sort of U.S. politics, economic structure in in the history of the United States, um, has become central to the way the United States sort of sees itself, talks about itself, and the process by which it's been turned into this national myth. Uh, and I... And I sort of began that story in many ways when President Ronald Reagan's long opposition to a King holiday, to a federal holiday honoring Dr. King, gives way to a decision to support the legislation. And this is in 1983. Reagan is up for re-election, and he comes. His administration comes to see supporting a holiday for Dr. King as useful to actually win moderate white vote. Mm. Um, that that Reagan's seen as having a kind of racial sensitivity issue. Um, of course, now we are 15 years after Dr. King's assassination, and so this this honoring Dr. King, but a, a and a stripped down version of Dr. King, mm. becomes a way to both celebrate celebrate Dr. King, celebrate the civil rights movement, put it firmly in the past. And use it in many ways to show, you know, a kind of American exceptionalist narrative. So, so an idea of an America that's constantly improving, and um, that in some ways the civil rights movement becomes proof of that uh, mm-hmm. in the way that the story is told. Um, and Dr. King and Rosa Parks are sort of central to that mm-hmm. idea. So they are kind of the figureheads. Um, but this becomes then a, a a way to simultaneously honor them, but strip them of who they were in their lives and the kind of fullness of their politics. So for instance, right. King becomes, it's all about the, the eye of a dream, the dream. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't even listen to the first part of, (laughs) so if we're even going to sort of say and think about Dr. King's speech at the March on Washington, um, what does it mean to think about the first part of that speech? The first part of that speech, Dr. King is talking about how uh, America has given black people a bad check. Mm Mm-hmm. And they've come to Washington to to basically sort of get redressed, to get, you know, that they believe that the Bank of, you know, of the United States, you know, will provide redress, right? Mm-hmm. So if what have we thought about that is not the eye of a dream speech, but the bad check speech. Because I think if we think about a bad check, how do you write a bad check? How do you make right a bad check? Right. You have to write a, a new check, a good <laughs> check, right? That's a... I mean, it's a real vision of like what is, what needs to change, what is owed. Um, it, you know, it is a vision certainly that that it will take material redress to change this situation. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Um, so, so 
so when you talked about how Reagan, uh, you know, his opposition toward it, but later on through, I guess, a little pressure, it's become accepted. And you kind of talked mm-hmm. about how this uh, myth- mythicizing um, of the movement was actually weaponized, right? To kind of help politicians mm-hmm. and others, right? Is yes. that what you're kind of saying in a sense? Yeah, so, I mean, so part of what has been, I, I think, one of the most dangerous ways that the civil rights movement has been mythologized is the ways that it's now used against movements today. Mm. Uh, and I think the clearest example of this is, is the way it's been weaponized against Black Lives Matter. Mm. Um, and so over and over and over, um, right, since the, the sort of movement gained national attention after Ferguson, we have seen commentators, politicians, um, Basically saying, you're not doing it the right way. Be more like Martin Luther King. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Wishing for Dr. King. Of course, in my head, I'm always like, be careful what you wish for. Because right. <laughs> in fact, right, Black Lives Matter in many ways is using strategies that Dr. King, that Rosa Parks, that Fannie Hamer, that Ella Baker stood for, which is disruptive protest, which is there can be no business as usual, mm-hmm. which is... I mean, Dr. King is arrested 30 times right. before. I mean, he's assassinated at the age of 39, mm-hmm. right? This is not the kind of peaceful, dreamy Dr. King does not at all do justice to who Dr. King was. Right. Um, and so that, to me, is one of the, the real present dangers of the way that we've mythologized the civil rights movement is that we miss, we also miss how unpopular it was. Mm-hmm. Most Americans mm-hmm. at the time did not support the civil rights movement when it was happening. Right. And, and- Even its most... Oh, sorry. No, no, go, please. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, even if we go back to the March on Washington, sort of Gallup polled Americans in the week leading up to the March on Washington, and most Americans did not agree with the March on Washington, did not. Um, you have all sorts of congressmen speaking out against the March on Washington as mob rule, as un-American. We're uh, talking black and white. We're talking black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly way more white. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. But there's certainly, so interestingly, in 19, by sort of 1966, 1967, overwhelming numbers of white people, um, upwards towards, you know, in, you know, 75, 80% are disapproving of Dr. King's tactics. 30% of black people are also disapproving. So mm-hmm. the idea that, I mean, disruptive protests made a lot of people uncomfortable, um, as it does today. And so, um, so, but I think we forget that. So I think there's a way that we kind of like to backdate our support of the civil rights movement to make it seem like most people stood on the right side of history uh, when they didn't. Right. Uh, and it's it's very difficult to stand on the right side of history. Yeah. And so that's I, one of, I think, the real lessons. I think you had a great example on there. I think it was the <clears throat> during the last uh, presidential debate, well, when they were trying to pick which Republican was going to go, was uh I forgot who was on the podium, but a lot of the Republicans, mm-hmm. when they asked who who would you support, I think it was to um, put on a on a on put one, a woman on the yep on yeah the ten dollar bill on the ten dollar yep. bill. A lot of them said Rosa Parks. <laughs> so, oh yeah. So just, isn't this kind of an example of what you're saying? They weaponize it. They're able to. They're they're missing the whole points of what she stood for. Actually, it's the opposite of everything they want to do. Right. Who they who they are as uh, Republicans? So what? Right. I mean, so basically, Ted Cruz, uh, Mario Rubio, and Donald Trump pick Rosa Parks, <laughs> uh, and then you're like, but, and they have this idea that Rosa Parks is this quiet, accidental, kind of walk on to history one day, you know, kind of one hit wonder. Um, when the actual Rosa Parks, you know, has this huge sort of political life that begins with the Scottsboro case. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a huge supporter of kind of change in the criminal justice system. So that includes, you know, she's working against police brutality. She's working against wrongful sort of accusations. She's working to get the criminal justice system to actually take seriously white violence and rape against black women. She's, she works on all sorts of prisoner defense committees in the sixties and seventies and eighties. She's a supporter of reparations. She's a supporter of a more robust safety net and public assistance. She's a supporter of um, 
real school desegregation and real change in the curriculum to get sort of black history in every classroom. Right? All of these things are things that, you know, those Republican contenders do not support, and yet they had no shame to kind of say, you know, I want to put Rosa Parks, I love Rosa Parks. <laughs> we constantly see the uh, the president and, support, and his supporters tweeting a photo that includes Trump and Rosa Parks as some sort of proof that <laughs> he's, you know, he's um, not racist when this is a photo that is basically an award uh, given where a ton of people get it. Rosa Parks is there. Donald Trump is there. Uh, But this is no award for racial justice. And this is no indication of uh, that they, (laughs) but it's so interesting, right? How often that photo circulates around and it circulated before the campaign and Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's lawyers tweeted it out before the campaign again as proof that what people were saying about Donald Trump's racial politics wasn't true. It's it's just it's interesting the way that sort of Rosa Parks in particular is constantly misused and mis, you know misremembered. In my eyes if they roll blockers Martin on my arm with the struggle made me more Malcolm Demon in the smoke, Kush burning like Ferguson Fuck Obama and Don Lemon, nigga, the nerve in him Seeing there, seeing there, but they ain't seeing him Tears of the tear gas, tears of the Elohim P.O.E. the priest, hit a pig with a prison shank God got me copy, I ain't scared of a fucking tank Glorious trouble, shout out my brother Tory Russell Well I die, die, in the middle, bye bye, don't put a bullet hole in my spleen The millennium with Palestinians and no Zionists in my dreams Don't kill me for that line, conceal me with flat lines I don't believe in no laws, I don't believe in your God It's your block for my black freedom, put a car bomb in your heart, uh Black child, ain't no love in this bitch. Feed your seed and get your chopper like the government did. P.O.E. Which side are you on? Get off the fence, son. Get off the fence, son. Who will stand to defend us? If you ain't with us, you against us. Get off the fence, son. Get off the fence, son. Who will stand to defend us? If you ain't with us, you against us. I think what you did good in this book is characters like uh, 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 Rosa Parks, they're, I've heard Cornel West use this, they've been Santa Clausificized. <laughs> you know, they've, right, right, they've been right. docile when, and yep, yep, you, yep. you talk about how they have this one great moment and that's what sparks the struggle when there's so much behind it. And yep. what, as, as a people, as 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 potential activists or as organizations that are um activism uh conducting activism right now what is lost when movements are just distilled down to just a few f- f- prominent figures i think a few things are lost i think the first thing that's lost is a sense of sort of how hard and how long our heroes and heroines had to fight Right. And so I think one of the real dangers of, for instance, the way that like Montgomery bus boycott story gets told is this sort of this idea that Rosa Parks sits down and people rise up and then it's changed. And that's simply not how it worked. Um, Part of why people rise up when Rosa Parks is arrested is because there's an accumulation both of outrage, but also an accumulation of sort of connections and people who know each other. Um, who can put this in motion, right? It takes years of groundwork beforehand. Um, it takes all of these people who have been working for, so Rosa Parks, right, has been doing, kind of working with um, Edie Nixon, who is uh, another local activist and leader of the Montgomery branch. And they've spent the past, you know, dozen years trying to transform kind of the Montgomery and the into a more activist chapter. You have, 
other people, uh, Joanne Robinson, the Women's Political Council in Montgomery, they are who actually call the boycott. They've been working for years. Um, but this idea that like Rosa Parks just sits down and then people rise up, right? That misses what it takes. I think it also makes it seem like people rise up at the first sign of injustice, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. injustice, um, if you, if you look at how, when Rosa Parks dies in 2005, um, President Bush, right? She becomes the first American to lie, first, uh, American woman, I should say, first civilian to lie in honor in the Capitol. Mm. Uh, President uh, George W. Bush comes to pay honor to her. He then moves to put a statue of Rosa Parks in the Capitol Statuary Hall. And when he's in the speech he gives sort of talking about that, he's talking about how basically a candle can light the darkness and this idea that like one person on one day can change history. <laughs> uh, and certainly I think that small groups of people can change history, but that doesn't happen on one day. Um, right. And so I think that's the first danger, is that we don't see how long it is, how hard it is, how much opposition there is, um, that oftentimes you're painted as sort of dangerous or disruptive or a troublemaker, as all of these people were um, at the time. And then that that's, but that's part of sort of the ways that the status quo stays the status quo, right? Mm-hmm. Is by portraying people who disrupt it as, as problem, as troublemakers, as dangerous. Um, I think third and we, um, is the ways that we then, the way we think about the civil rights movement uh, is sort of places it only in the South. And uh, I think that's very dangerous. Yeah. Um, why is that? And why? Why, is, why has the movement only been kind of placed in the South? Why has... Why have we been so fixated on the problems in the South when we know for the longest time there's been equality, inequality in the North as well? So I think it's a couple of things. I think, so part of what, um, what I think this myth of the civil rights movement does is that it's comfortable. It makes us feel like we've made progress. It makes us proud of ourselves. It makes it feel like this was a sort of aberration, right? To contend with, a movement that's not just in the deep South, but that's in New York city, that's in Milwaukee, that's in Detroit, that's in LA, that's in Philadelphia, right. Is to contend with sort of racism as a national cancer. Um, it is to contend with the fact that, um, I think that again, the myth of the civil rights movement is that there's this hard struggle, but then Jim Crow's overturned, mm-hmm. right. Uh, segregation is overturned. Yet if we look at sort of, um, you know, three couple years ago that UCLA put out a study showing that the most segregated schools are in New York, right? So mm-hmm. how do we make sense of that? Mm-hmm. Partly we make sense of that because, in fact, if we, if we don't talk about what's happened in places like New York City and we don't bring to bear, you know, the, there, was, there were all of these movements in New York, for instance, around school desegregation, and they're constantly sort of pushed to the side. They're constantly seen as disruptive. They're constantly seen as like, we don't have a problem in New York City, right? right? And that's comfortable uh, because similar to what's happening in Alabama, people in New York City, many people in New York City don't want to desegregate their schools. They, and they, they use different tactics by which to try to prevent desegregation. Mm-hmm. And I think to have to see those tactics is both useful, both historically, but it also, so many of these tactics are still in play today. So this idea that you have to prove there's a problem, yeah. this idea that uh, one of the things you see in a city like New York is just uh, black and Latino children being blamed for their culture, their values, as a way to kind of distract conversations about desegregation. Mm-hmm. So, so not having the right values for education or the right work ethic or work habits. Um, these are long-standing tropes used to deflect conversations about equity and desegregation.
It's for soldiers and warriors on a special mission My people's dying every day like this is civil war King and only fight for the Christians He tried to help all poor After gaining ground in the south He went from west to north Seeing how they lived in the ghettos Begin to change his course He saw what Malcolm did It's more than politics It's more than integration We must fix the finances System ain't designed for the elite To change the power course It is designed to keep us struggling And cut the power off It ain't a game until the pawn become a queen Snatch up your rook A couple bishops and start moving on your king Start up the marches and the protests Become in peace Organize, let's speak the truth and not leave a hood All burnt down and vandalized Let's build upon the leaders of the past And take it farther than them Give the generation coming up a lot of father figures Keep our little soldiers and women from heading straight to prison Listen, cause the revolution won't be on your television the revolution ain't for television It's for soldiers and warriors on a special mission The revolution ain't for television It's for soldiers and warriors on a special mission If you're enjoying Book Speaks and Beyond, do us a favor. Go into the show notes of any episode, click on the iTunes logo to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. In the book, you know, you talked about that you know that President Obama didn't acknowledge the 50th anniversary of the largest civil rights protests of the decade, mm-hmm. but you know right. he, he traveled to Alabama with his family uh, to commemorate the anniversary of the the march uh, from Selma to Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But if you can elaborate, because I know this has been uh, definitely hasn't been spoken about that much in the history books, but the largest mm-hmm. civil rights mm-hmm. protest of the decade wasn't in the South; it was in the North and and right. why, why did President Obama not give any credit to this endeavor? Again, I think part of this is part of the civil rights stories we like are stories of struggle and and victory, right? And to have looked and honored the civil rights movement in New York is to have to honor a movement that didn't didn't succeed in getting kind of comprehensive desegregation in the city, that Mm -hmm. the resistance to that movement was so great um, and the kind of lack of attention that sort of national politicians, national media brought to that movement was not the kind of attention they brought to the South. Um, So basically what we're talking about is the February 3rd, 1964 school boycott in New York City um, where nearly half a million students and teachers day out of school that day to protest the fact that we're 10 years after Brown and there's still no comprehensive plan for desegregation in New York City. Mm. Now this is, um, there has been over that decade between Brown and 1964 in New York City, tons of different efforts and actions by black parents, by civil rights leaders, by teachers, uh, by black and some white teachers to try to get the Board of Ed to take seriously the mandate that the Supreme Court had laid down in Brown, which is sort of separate, can never be equal, the right to an equal education. Um, And you see sort of stonewalling by the board. You see the superintendent of New York schools basically instructing his his administrators, don't ever use the word segregation, use separation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this this language of how we're going to talk about New York City schools, right, use racial imbalance. we see parent protests. Um, uh, there's parent protests outside of New York City Hall in 57. You have the Harlem Nine, which are nine mothers who, who, after being constantly trying to meet and get change for their kids and to change their kids' school, these Harlem mothers basically take their kids out of school in 1958 in protest of the sort of unequal conditions in those schools. I mean, over and over in this yeah. decade, we have parents and and, and local activists trying to get the Board of Ed to act, and they won't. Then February 3rd, 1964, nearly half a million students and teachers stay out of school. Um, uh, the New York Times treats this like they're, I mean, is up in arms about the 1964 school boycott. If you go and look at how the New York Times editorializes against it, they call it unreasonable, mm-hmm. unjustified, and violent. They use the word violence. Yeah. And I think it's interesting how, and I think we can see this uh, in many cases where disruptive protests, even if there is no violence against either property or a person, but if 
if it's meant to be disruptive, starts to be called violent. Right. Um, and so you see this huge school, school like this uh, boycott, February 1964. Then you see white parents get um, sort of get nervous that the board of the board of ed starts to make some moves to have some modest sort of in many ways, uh, just pairing a couple of dozen schools in New York City, this would not have been comprehensive, but again, the modest desegregation, they start to float a possible plan, white parents um, rise up. Uh, there's a, a, a much smaller march in March of 1964, uh, 15,000 mostly white mothers march over the Brooklyn Bridge against this very modest plan. <laughs> it gets tons of TV coverage, media coverage, ends up affecting the shape of the Civil Rights Act. Um, this is, again, spring of 1964. The Civil Rights Act is being debated in Congress. It's kind of liberal northern leaders. Um, hear their white constituents' fears, and so they put in a loophole into the Civil Rights Act. So one of the things Civil Rights Act is going to do is it's going to tie federal funding to schools to desegregation. Um, but northern... Congressmen don't want that desegregation kind of coming home to their own district. So mm -hmm. they, they put a loophole in the Civil Rights Act sort of saying desegregation shall not mean, and again, I'm paraphrasing, you mm -hmm. know, uh, assigning school students to schools to overcome racial imbalance. And you'll remember that this is one of the ways that Northerners like to talk about their schools, that they're racially imbalanced. <laughs> and so written into the Civil Rights Act is that that's not going to happen. Um, and at the time, it's completely clear, and many Southerners are up in arms about the kind of double standard. Um, Strom Thurmond calls sort of these New York uh, congressmen and senators pretty good segregationists, um, <laughs> right? Arch segregationist Strom Thurmond. And, you know, but what Thurmond is mad about is that he wants this for himself, too. Um, and so I think we've been able to sort of, we don't remember that in history. Mm -hmm in part because uh, that double standard is called out by people who aren't concerned about sort of black children in New York City, right? It's not that Strom Thurmond's really concerned about the kind of, you know, about desegregating New York City sort of kids. He's just pointing out this hypocrisy of Northern sort of political right. leaders. And I think, I think what was interesting is how you talked about how the... Um, the the media how the media was always massaging the language when it came to the northern struggle and why at the same time when it comes to the south then you know it's 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 a totally different a totally different story but i, I think mm -hmm. i think you go a little further and um i like how you talked about you know that the busing I remember you talked about busing uh, in mm -hmm. the North yeah. and I didn't know yeah. that busing was already there. You know, they make it look like it's just taking people from so-called underprivileged areas and putting them in the, in the more privileged areas. But really the white people were busing for, for, for years going oh, across, yeah. across they, they might've had a black school, like literally down the street, but they would bus their kids to another school. You know, it, mm -hmm. all these little interesting yep. tactics that you talked about how the North, yep. Yep would hide this, yeah. uh, th th this, but portray it as something wrong in, in the South. And, and, and not yeah. only did you talk about the, the North doing that, but you also massaged in there how um, they didn't really talk much about the, you know, n Northern black activists, right? It was always mm -hmm. about the South black activists. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the language with the North activists was a little different. Why? Why, why would they do that? Um, well, a couple things. First, I'm glad you pointed out the busing thing, because I think one of the huge mythologies about Northern desegregation is that white people were just objecting to busing and they liked neighborhood schools, right? These right. like more pleasant words. Um, when, um, as Julian Bond would say, right, he said, it's not the bus, it's us. Right. And when you actually look at, you know, Boston, right, in some sense, the most iconic <laughs> place, uh, you know, uh, in terms of this whole idea of busing, that mm -hmm. the vast, vast majority of kids are being bused before busing, and busing was used both to keep schools segregated, right? So kids were being bused to schools to keep them segregated. They were being bused for other reasons, right? This is a period where you start to see the 
bigger high schools, comprehensive high schools, the idea that you have these bigger schools that you can provide more different kinds of educational opportunities, right? Busing is being used for all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And yet the only, you know, white parents rise up only when it starts to be used for desegregation, right? We don't see these same kinds of organized movements against busing when it's going to mean either keeping your kid in the school that you want your kid in or getting your kid to be able to have like better science and music. Mm -hmm. It's, but it becomes northerners are also very invested in sort of seeing themselves as very different from southerners. They're open. They're not. They're not racist, right? So over and over, part of how they deflect these movements is by saying, "This is not the South. We're not the problem. It's, uh, we're not racist, right?" Is this where you talk about the polite of, racist? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, and I think, and I use that term, polite racism, and sort of it's partly taken from Dr. King, right? So I think we also forget, we also tend to only think about what Dr. King did in the South and we miss sort of Dr. King's both work in the North, but also criticism of kind of the limits of Northern liberalism. Right. That he Um, did so much in the North that we don't even hear about it. I mean, there's documented speeches and everything. Yeah. mm -hmm. And so he, he writes this piece, uh, a couple a couple months after the Watts uprising in 1965. Um, and so King had been all over the North in the early 60s and had been in L.A. multiple times in the early 60s talking about police brutality, you know, joining with local movements around police brutality, around housing segregation, around school segregation. Um, and so after the Watts uprising, King um, it takes to the pages of the Saturday Review, which is a magazine of the time, to basically kind of call out white kind of shock and surprise, uh, in part because there's these long-standing grievances that were not addressed. Mm-hmm. There are these movements that have gone unaddressed. Um, and so King is basically saying, you know, he's grown extremely disillusioned with sort of Northern leaders who kind of welcome him to their city and they praise him and, and you know, praise the actions of Southern Black people but the minute it turns to local conditions, and this is King's language, only the language is polite. Uh, um, the, yeah. the resistance was kind of firm and unequivocal. Hmm. So he's, um, he's really, I think, looking at kind of this, and, and I think calling out the kind of limits of Northern liberalism in terms of sort of change at home, hmm. um, that you see people being willing to press for change um, and even taking kind of strong steps to kind of get change by the 1960s um, in the South, but not bringing that same attention home. Um, and we can see that in the way the media covers, like, uh, again, uh, like the New York Times. Like the New York Times coverage of kind of desegregation in Alabama in the early 60s is different from how they're covering the desegregation movements in in at home in New York city. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so for instance, one of the leaders, like you're saying, we don't tend to know the names um, as much of, of sort of Northern activists, right? One of the Northern activists who's key to that New York city school desegregation struggle is a, a Brooklyn minister by the name of Milton Galamison. Um, and he's sort of spearheading kind of these much of this organizing. He's one of the leaders of the 1964 school boycott. Um, and, the New York Times just is like unhinged by him and they just are so agitated about him and they, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, they, they, he makes them so nervous because he's kind of calling out this, the kind of systemic nature of segregation in New York city. Right. Because another way that Northerners try to deflect this is they say, it's not systemic here. We might, we have racism and prejudice and, you know, some people are hateful, but we don't have systemic racism. <laughs> and a, pe- a person like Glamison is saying, no, this is systemic and we need systemic change. You invite you invite yeah, we dressing all black and you know we stay strapped, but the right to bear arms ain't nothing wrong with that. It's a black panther party, right? Coming hold it down, it's a black panther party, right? It's a party, it's a party. If you gonna hold it down, it's a black panther party, right? 
The news played it all, publicity with ease. Membership blew like Afro Sheen. They got another and another, several sisters and with brothers. So the FBI and Hoover plan a bunch of undercovers. Hoover was afraid of a black messiah, so he made plans to prevent a black messiah. He said the Panthers were the nation's biggest threat. The cops should kill this group of terrorists. But the Black Panthers gave out free breakfast and monitored cops when blacks were arrested. They made sure black folks were protected and gave free books and black history lessons. But Huey was arrested, he allegedly shot a cop. Elder Squeaver took over as leader and ran the shop. He demanded for Huey to be set free. Marching on the court, all Panthers would sing. Went downhill after death the king. Elders took measures that were too extreme. He said, Aye, we about to throw a party. Are you coming? You invited, you invited. Aye, we about to throw a party. You invited, you invited. Yeah, we dressing all black. Everybody get your strap. Straight shot down king, and it's time for payback. It's a black panther party. I think also in this book, not only do you focus on how the North has kept their image of not being as racist as the South, but you also jump into how important the youth are. And you actually say, where are the youth, right? Where are the young people? Right, right. So, so right. why have young people been omitted from, you know, the, the black freedom struggle and, and, and what their role was? So, um, I mean, I think, and this is again where I think the parallels to the present are very useful, mm-hmm. but one of the key, you know, places where we see kind of leadership and pushing forward in the civil rights movement is high school students, college, you know, high school age students, college students. Um, and, and at times they're met by the same kinds of nervousness by adults that we see young people's activism today, right? So, so if we think about even some of the most iconic moments of the civil rights movement, like Brown versus Board of Education, um, it's actually five cases, and probably my favorite, one of my favorite cases that, that becomes part of that uh, legal uh, decision is a case that comes out of Prince Edward County, Virginia, that started by a high school student named Barbara Johns. Um, some of her classmates, uh, they attend the all-black Moton High School, and some of her classmates are working after school at the white high school and realize the difference in kind of resources and the school building. And so they come back and they decide, Barbara John says, well, we need to go on strike. And so they go on strike. They call the National NAACP office for support. Uh, the NAACP sends down two lawyers initially to dissuade these students to say this, this doesn't make sense, you know, it's dangerous, don't do this. And these, these young people are so determined that, in fact, they get the NAACP to support them. Mm-hmm. And this case will become, again, one of the five cases that goes all the way to the Supreme Court um, in there and then what is part of their decision in 1954 in Brown. But it's, this, this is high school students acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, if we're thinking about the Montgomery bus boycott, um, part of how Montgomery buses get desegregated is because three months into the boycott, understanding how one of the tactics the state had used previously was to tie cases up in state court. And they were worried that this was going to happen again with Rosa Parks' case, which is in state court. So uh, activists and, and lawyer Fred Gray decide that the thing to do is to file proactively into federal court. Um, and four women are on that case. Um, Rosa Parks is actually not on that case. They decide, at first she was going to be, but they, they were worried that it would be used to throw the case out because she had a case in state court. Mm. Uh, Also, Rosa Parks has this whole huge political history, particularly with the NAACP. You know, by 1956, the NAACP will be outlawed in Alabama. So Mrs. Parks is not on that case. Four women. Two of the women on that case are teenagers. Claudia Colvin, Mary Louise Smith. Wow. They had wanted a minister. They'd wanted a man to be part of that case. No one was willing. Right. So who goes forward? Four courageous women, two of whom are teenagers. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Again, teenagers playing this really crucial role. And it's that case that goes all the way to the Supreme Court and leads to the desegregation of Montgomery's buses. Wow. But again, two teenagers. That's incredible. Being part of that. Yeah. If you look at some of the movements today around uh, gun violence, around climate change, mm-hmm. the, the, the media make it look like this is unprecedented that these young people are standing up. <laughs> but that's not the case, right? 
And, and similar, right. So young people, and, and I think we can also see a similar thing where young people are being, you know, they're, you're doing it too wrong, you're uh-huh. not doing it right, right, you're moving too fast. And these are criticisms also, again, being used against young people in the civil rights movement so that, that, that adults kind of distrust of young people, which we see sometimes today. Um, but again, yeah, young people pushing it forward, young people being the vanguard, young people saying, we can't wait, we're not waiting. So this kind of um, plays into respectability politics too, right? I, I think in the in, in kind of yeah, in the book yeah. you talked about yeah. not just white people, yeah. but some of the black people that were part of the the movement in the past are saying that you know they're not going about it right. But <laughs> but okay. if right. but you also said I think the book helps us understand that when you study history, you have to look at what's going on today. It's almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like you said, that these people weren't even res- the young people back then did not care. They didn't care about respectability, but you said as time changes and it's been weaponized that they, they kind of make everybody more docile. Right. Right. So that some of the, right, certainly some of the criticisms of black lives matter are coming from people who were in the civil rights movement or had, a, you know, allegiances to the civil rights movement. And they're saying to these young people, you're not doing it right. Both forgetting that certainly these are criticisms used against the civil rights movement at the time um, you know, right, sort of making it seem like it's, you know, this kind of disruptiveness is, you know, why are you doing that? Why are you blocking highways? This kind of, when when disruptiveness was absolutely key to to what made the civil rights movement, right? right? Again, the sense that there can be no business as usual and and that part of how kind of oppression or segregation is maintained is through a kind of sense that we have to have business as usual. And part of what the civil rights movement said was no. And, and, yeah. Um, I, I think what the book made me also look at is I started to think about all the ages of the, the, the civil rights leaders, the, the, the mm-hmm. black freedom uh, power movement mm-hmm. leaders. I was like, I never really thought about how old they were. And as you start mm-hmm. to look at it, all of them were pretty young. Well, there's, there's yep. even some that are even younger. It's just amazing how, as, as it's presented to us, they seem like they're much older and, and so forth and it it, it kind of uh, it can it can be uh, detrimental to the youth i mean if you can explain how how, mm-hmm. how not talking about the youth how does that hurt the youth today and, and when it comes to them one right. with movements right well i think if you don't see that this the civil rights movement is being kind of propelled by young people both in terms of high school students but also absolutely when the i mean again in montgomery when king first gets involved He's 26. Yeah. And and so I think to take out the kind of incredible kind of roles young people played is to miss. I mean, I think when you can, when you see what young people have done in the past, both I think it makes it easier to imagine how we do it today and also how those same young people were just, were disparaged at the time Mm -hmm. in language similar to today. I think it makes it, it gives you a different kind of perspective. Um, and and again, just for because for me, you know, I always look to Rosa Parks. Interestingly, so when we look at Rosa Parks in the '60s, right by the, by kind of the later '60s, right, Rosa Parks is living in Detroit. She's she's active in Black Power in Detroit and across the country. Um, she's in and she's in her mid fifties by this point, mm-hmm. um, and early mid fifties, and so. She also models for me how adults and middle-aged people should interact with youth movements. So uh, one of the things that I heard from lots of people when I was doing interviews um, for my Rosa Parks book um, was how she would say, you know, if I can be useful, I will come. And so you see Rosa Parks at all of these. Uh, for instance, in 1967, they hold this People's Tribunal in Detroit because there's all this police abuse and the killing of three young men at the Algiers Motel during the Detroit uprising, and there's been no justice around this. And there's no indictment, and the media's not investigating it. So they hold this kind of radical people's tribunal just to hold the kind of city and the cops responsible. And they, they call Mrs. Parks, and they ask her to come. Would she ha- come and be part of the jury? And she says, yes, if I can be helpful, I will come. So to me, she also models what sort of middle-aged people, yeah. the ways to interact with movements being, you know, kind of launched by young people, which is, I don't have to tell you what to do, but I'm going to support you, Mm. right? I'm going to come. 
That's a good point. Because gonna, when you yeah. look at the media today with the, you know, when all the Black Lives Matter coverage, it's almost like, uh, who is the leader? How, it, it seems disorganized. But right. reading books like yours, it shows that most of the time there wasn't a, a, a true leader in a sense. You know, it was a small gathering of people. Um, right. It wasn't just this big community out of nowhere. It was always right. these, the small people. And, 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 you know, like you said, just making it part of these prominent figures, it actually, in a way, can deter people from joining movements, thinking, okay, maybe this isn't the right way to go about it, when, in fact, it is, right? Right, right. I mean, I think, so one of the reasons um, that, that the civil rights movement works is partly because of leadership like people like Ella Baker, right? right? Ella Baker um, has placed huge roles in the NAACP, the SCLC, and then the founding of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And part of Ella Baker's belief is this idea that you give people space to be their own leaders. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And to kind of, and so, so in many ways, when we look at the civil rights movement, part of what, part of its genius is, is actually all of these local leaders, right? And all of these people who are kind of seeing the possibility for change where they are and taking action. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, the way we tend to remember the civil rights movement is that it's like, you know, it's Dr. King, it's, it's Thurgood Marshall, it's Malcolm X, right? These singular leaders, as mm-hmm. opposed to a lot of what made it successful, which is all of these local leaders and this idea that people have within themselves the possibility, you know, to sort of see the solutions for their own communities and to lead to, to lead their own communities, right? So yeah. it's a kind of democratic idea of leadership. Yeah, I think I think that was a, a brilliant point you made in there because there's always there's it, it, it starts in the ground it starts with a few people but those few people can then appoint someone to help kind of lead it in a sense but it, it's not necessarily needed they just say that this is a voice that's a little more prominent in this movement it wasn't started by this person which we, we mm-hmm. come to believe that's what it's all about right Cases are heads in the clouds, or we're lost in space. Citizens of the divided states identify with hatred for our demise. They watch and wait. Look at the downward spiral, it's going viral. Nobody's ever accountable. Who's held liable? If anyone could correspond, if they're so inclined to a sad, they want to borderline redefine you. As a people, we can rise like the tides do to tower over evil as a nation under God. Indivisible is visible the way we're all at odds, but together we'll survive. Just never seven ties. We can rise to a brilliance, rise to a balance. Rise to a way to coexist in non-violence Rise to a volume that's impossible to silence In the morning when I rise, I rise to the challenge history of this nation have so many people been for the cause of freedom and human dignity. Now let me say this, keep this movement going, keep this movement rolling, long as we keep moving like we are moving, the power structure will have to give in. In spite of the difficulties, and we're going to have a few more difficulties, And I think another great part about your book, not only do you talk about young people, you talk about 
the importance of women and in in movement since the beginning <laughs> like and right. but, but why are women omitted from the movements and are, are viewed as submissive or 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 this in an accidental role uh in leadership mm-hmm. well, i think there's a couple of things i think first we are not we've had trouble holding the idea that there could have been sexism in the civil rights movement and still there was leadership by women in the movement mm. and both of those things are true I think one of the things that's happened is in talking about sort of sexism, which is in the civil rights movement, which is in American society at the time, this has become a way to kind of miss all the kinds of organizing leadership, galvanizing roles women played. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing we can see, and again, uh, I talk in the book about Rosa Parks, I talk in the book about Credit Scott King, yeah. is even some of the ways we honor sort of women in the movement are very gendered. And they miss kind of the fullness of, again, these women's politics. So if we take somebody like Credit Scott King, I would say most, most, most people know who Credit Scott King is, but they don't have a sense of kind of the fullness of her life in politics. They don't have a sense that, in fact, some of her politics actually drive her husband. Yes. Um, so, you know, she really has this kind of vision of kind of global peace, anti-war, kind of across the 1960s, and and, it's, and that vision is part of what I think moves, moves her husband, right, to the decision in 1967, right, to, at Riverside Church to make this kind of incredible kind of uh, condemnation of U.S. involvement in Vietnam and the mispriorities of kind of the United States at the time, but but we have to understand Dr. King doesn't get there without Coretta Scott King, mm-hmm. without the ways that she is has come out on the war much publicly much earlier, that she's making connections between these kind of domestic priorities and our foreign policy, that this is, this is something that she, um, that I think she leads on in terms, and, and at one point she's, uh, 1965, she's spoken out, publicly against the war and a reporter asked Dr. King, well, did you educate her? And Dr. King says, no, she educated me. (laughs) And so, um, so I think part of also kind of looking at women in the movement is looking at women we think we know and kind of seeing them through a wider lens. Uh, And then I think also there's a whole host of women South and North, right. That are leading and organizing um, and sort of the need to see that. More broadly, too. Yeah, I think I think there was a there was an interesting quote in there. I, I think it was um, uh, Arnold Ar- Ar- Arnold Hedgeman, and mm-hmm. uh, she said, "I wished very much that Martin Luther King said, we have a dream.' Mm-hmm. Wh- which is yeah. a, wh- which was a, which is a very if you can talk about how powerful that statement is. So Arnold Hedgeman was um, kind of the. She's working for the National Council of Churches at the time. She's a longtime organizer. She's the only woman on the kind of central committee organizing for the March on Washington. Um, she she draws attention and to the fact that they don't have any women speakers. Um, she's also very responsible for getting a lot of white Christians to the March mm-hmm. on Washington. Like part of what we think about the March on Washington, part of its power is that it's interracial. Okay. Um, and there's a lot, there's actually a lot of white people there too. Um, but that's partly through organizing that Hedgeman sort of spearheaded with the national council of churches. Um, but she, again, she's an organizer. And so I think partly what she was saying about Dr. King's, I have a dream is that in fact, this was a much more collective vision, but that it then gets articulated with this, I have a dream. And then the, I have a dream obviously takes on this like life of its own. Right. And so it's, it misses, in fact, both what the power of the civil rights movement was, which was this kind of collective vision and collective action. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think the book does a great job of just showing that the power of women in in in, in the movements. I meant uh, so much that the if if the 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 movements that have a different trajectory. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about mm-hmm. even when we're talking about. Um, fighting for uh, education, uh, a lot of a lot of that was um, spearheaded by a lot of women. If if we're if we're talking about like you said, organization of the civil rights movement, a lot of that on the ground was spearheaded by women. So mm-hmm. much has been done by Black women in this movement, 
um, that it, it, it's it's kind of um, it's kind of heartbreaking that it's not brought to the forefront. But you know, with with a lot of there's a lot of um, more awareness now of black women and their roles in the in the movements now and you know we use stuff like black girl magic it's they make it seem like it's something new going on but i think it's really bringing it to the forefront now right um and i'm wondering what kind of is propelling that you know um what do you think i think a lot of i mean i think one of the things that's happened with black lives matter is there's been um like real leadership of Black Lives Matter, huge, like uh, widespread women's leadership, and the the need to make sure that we see that leadership. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have been very mindful that, similar to the civil rights movement, which had a lot of leadership by women, but often not as well seen. And so I think we've we've seen more attention recently to making sure that the people leading the people doing the work, the people kind of having the vision, right, are actually recognized. And I think that's been, um, I think one of the things people are doing now that's, I think, made it so we're seeing kind of more yeah. the breadth of who's actually, whose ideas, who's organizing, whose vision is is leading this. Right. And, and I think, I think a good point, you, you, you know, we talked about it already, but how the media is always had, they've never been fair and balanced in, in any of the uh, movements, you know, it's always uh, portrayed the, the, the mm-hmm. black activists and so forth as, as, as extremists and troublemakers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And with social media, social media is kind of helping our, uh, the cause, any, all the, all the movements because, it's actually showing firsthand what's going on and it's kind of forcing the media's hand to a certain extent, but at the same time, mm-hmm. they're still trying to play mm-hmm. these roles that you talk about mm-hmm. in your book of, of weaponizing mm-hmm. the movements and so forth. But, um, mm-hmm. uh, you talk about how most of the, um, prominent civil rights figures, uh, and, uh, black activists were, were in their time considered by both whites, mostly whites and, and some blacks as extremists, you know, troublemakers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, national security threats. Uh, uh, but, mm-hmm. but, but now our history paints them in a more docile light, like we just talked about, and also uh, paints the people's perceptions uh, as amiable toward, or toward these activists in the movement. Uh, what, what effect do you think that has today on social movements? showing you know the the perception that people had this um annual perception of what it was back in the day but we know case in point today that's not true i mean i think it it partly by seeing the ways that things like national security um this idea of extremists were used as ways to justify kind of surveilling sort of black movements uh in the 50s, 60s, 70s, then makes us mindful about the use of those words today and the ways that people pressing for transformative or radical change often have been seen as kind of dangerous to kind of national security. Um, and, and again, I think there's a way that then we say, oh, well, they just got it wrong. They should never have surveilled Martin Luther King, but today is different. And I think, I think <laughs> what this history asks us is to sort of be much more mindful of, right, like how it wasn't just the FBI. It wasn't just like J. Edgar Hoover acting as some sort of rogue, right? That these, these ideas were taken up by many political leaders of the kind of danger, potential dangers of the civil rights movement, right. the need um, to be watching, monitoring, surveilling. Uh, so I think, but that, that it's justified right through this lens of national security. And so I think, again, being aware of that history helps us to sort of ask more questions in the present. Right. You make it seem like history isn't even history. It's the same thing, right? It's literally, we're living what has been omitted from, from the history books. Right. And and, and I I like that. It's like, wait a minute, this is going on right now because, uh, you talked about Rosa Parks and her sitting on the bus just so we can sit next to each other as black and white wasn't really part of the movement. It was talking about 
not uh, uh you know being respected uh uh police mm-hmm. violence criminal justice mm-hmm. it's like you hear mm-hmm. this right now but you wouldn't yep. know that right it, it, it's it's just in- interesting Yeah, 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 yeah. Well? I'll be damn if I close my eyes tonight without getting that pay. But I'm sick and tired of living on lease land. Like, what the fuck is my 48? Cause then my great grand that it paid for. With blood, sweat, and slave labor. Goddamn, Uncle Sam said, hold your breath and wait for. The deed to sign, everybody mind around me is dying Living Pope, that gangster shit, mindsets they sold that we've been buying At the cost of a life, though I don't have much, let me offer my light Show you things ain't what they seem, this wicked dream is the black man's plight So that man's flight, must be first class I'm going hard for Rosa Parks, I cannot sit in the bag Let's great Bucon and caviar, be in the back of that bag I pray to God for all my dogs to make it out of the trap yeah. Preacher, teacher, politician, lie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Victor told me get rich in that try, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who'd have thought the gangsta be the way, yeah, yeah, is this one? I go yeah. to the end of the earth just to free my mind. So I take it one day at a time. I go to the end of the earth just to free my mind. So I take it one day at a time. I go to the end of the earth just to free my mind. So I take it one day at a time. Cause I'd be damned if I let another year go by Without getting a piece of the pie Don't you play like you in love Cause you know it's for sure Don't you play like you in love So, so what do you think um, it's going to take to undo these myths? I mean, to me, one of the other exciting things about this moment we're in and, and the many movements that I think have, have sprouted is, I think, a commitment to, to learning and to reading and to kind of understanding broader and differently. And so part of it, I think, is, you know, and again, I'm a <laughs> professor, but I think part of it is about, right, like learning and about reading Broadly, and the movements we're studying, we, you know, we, if we look in the 50s, 60s, 70s, these are movements that are also studying and reading and, mm-hmm. um, and the need to do that, right? The need to sort of unlearn or get a better, broader education was crucial then and it's crucial now. Right. Um, and I think that's one of the first steps is, and I think there's a huge hunger for it, huge. I mean, I've just been really struck by how, I mean, I think lots of, like local Black Lives Matter groups, for instance, have study. They are they're having study groups, much like this. Yeah. Like many of these other movements, right? The Panthers have study groups. Um, right. This this idea that that um, we need to to know and learn differently, I think, is important. Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 what do you think it's going to take to make sure that you know our current movements don't get mythologized because we're living in now, but your book makes it seem like. They're just keeping this all in a folder to edit and erase it later, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is understand. Yeah, certainly I think that these kind of dangers of, of people who are then, right, um, honored in ways that strip is not a, a, a problem that just is confined to the civil rights movement. But, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah. it will take now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I do want to say one thing is that um, reading this book it it it, it will definitely shed light that um, what we are doing today and what we continue to do in movements is is has always been the way it's done. The way that people are being demonized is how it's always been done. So. Um, we just got to keep that in mind and keep moving forward and and yeah. I, um I, I think this book is going to do a, a a big service to that the the last Thank question you. I want to ask you is what do you really want people really want people to take away from this book I mean so the title of the book is taken from a James Baldwin like a James Baldwin talk to teachers and the title is again a, a riff on James so James Baldwin says American history is longer larger more various more beautiful and more terrible than anything that any, anyone has ever said about it hmm. and so partly why I use that was I do think you you really learn this history and it's a much more sobering history it's a much it, it shines a light on how much more work we have to do in this country 
I think, but it's also a more beautiful history and the ways, what it gives us for the present in terms of, you know, um, sustenance and, the and, and how we might move forward, I think is tremendous, right? It's more inspiring even than we've been taught. So I guess I would say both of those things, right? That the version of the civil rights movement we've been given is, is not serious enough, is not substantive enough, is not hard enough, but it's also not beautiful enough. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I hope that this becomes a textbook in classes. I mean, it doesn't have to just Thank be at the you. collegiate level. We can break Thank it down you. for yeah. for the for the youth because, as we learn, Absolutely. they're very important in the right. movements. <laughs> Thank and, you. And I just want to say thank you so much uh, for being on Book Speaks thank Beyond so today. Thank, thank you. you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jean Theo Harris about her book, A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. If you like the book and want to dig in more, I, I truly believe this should be on your uh, on your family library. Uh, go ahead and click on that link and, and, and support um, her and, and purchase this book. Uh, this is information that we need to know. This is definitely information we need to pass on to our children because um, there's so much that's been omitted. And this book helps shed a light that anyone can step up to be an activist and be part uh, of a movement and just know that some of the tactics that are going on today have always been going on and but have been omitted. And knowing those tactics and, and, and knowing that history only helps fuel us for the fight currently and in the future. So um, go ahead and go inside the link and uh, purchase this book. And also while you're in the show notes, go ahead and click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and review. And click on that Patreon link and help support Book Speaks Beyond so we can keep bringing you uh, episodes like this today. Okay? So until next time, let's read, listen, explore.